2: When I was a young man in high school, I was obsessed with funk music. I listened to Parliament, Funkadelic, and Cool and the Gang on repeat. I quoted lines ad nauseum such as, Tear the roof off the sucker, tear the roof off the sucker, and <laughs> that's so embarrassing. And let me, and I would say things like, Let me put my sunglasses on so I can see what I'm doing here. <laughs> I was in a band, a short lived band called Function with a K, not a C. Oh, God, and I may have written a song called You Funked My Battleship. <laughs> How was the radio play on that one? <laughs> it was. It was a local hit. <laughs> a local hit. Log, local high school. school. Was, yeah. No. Localized to my bedroom. Oh, okay. <laughs> great, great. But I had to hide my love of funk because people didn't really understand why I was so obsessed with the music that was so old and dated and why I wasn't listening to what was on the radio at that time, Alanis Morissette and the Goo Goo Dolls. (laughs) And I, so I sort of pushed that to the side and went on with my life and function disbanded. Mm. And now I'm listening to the radio and what comes on the speakers, but uptown funk, the number one song in the country and man charlie it should have been me it should have been me (laughs) that lanky jewish guy making funky music for all of america should have been me and what i want to do in this episode of switched on pop is understand why it's him and not me (laughs) I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And you're listening to
0: Switched on Pop, the show about the music in pop music.
2: On today's episode, we are going to delve deep into the number one song in America, Uptown Funk, by Mark Ronson, featuring Bruno Mars. And we're going to try and understand... Why a DJ is leading the revival of soul and funk music. And what is it about the sound of funk music that makes it just so funky? And for the first time in the short history of Switched On Pop, we are going to be joined by a special guest who will help us understand what happened to funk.
0: Where did it go? Why did it disappear in the first place? And why is it coming back today? So Mark Ronson comes out with this single, Uptown Funk, for his record, which came out yesterday. And just last week, he usurped Taylor Swift as wow. the number one song on the charts, which is really maybe heartbreaking for Nate and I, as you all have seen our love for Taylor. <laughs> There's lots of people who've got to be asking who is this Mark Ronson? Well, he's this secret sage of pop music, one of those guys working behind the scenes, right. putting out hits year after year. And all the while growing his name with iconic DJ sets, largely in New York, but also around the world. And he's got credits to his name with Christina Aguilera, Adele, Bruno Mars, even Paul McCartney. And he's, of course, best known for his work with Amy Winehouse on Back to Black.
2: They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back,
0: So you've got this person who's been working behind the scenes and all of a sudden his name is now on the charts. Right. And so what we're seeing here is the move from producer into artists. Something that we should all acknowledge is every time we hear a really good pop song on the radio, there's usually someone behind it who's helping craft that sound. And Mark Ronson is a great example of one of those producers. He's making that crossover now. I think an, a one a great example from the past would be Quincy Jones, who was behind many of Michael Jackson's
2: records. Um what else was he behind? He was he started as a trumpet player actually. Played in Dizzy Gillespie's band, yeah.
0: <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he also works with Ray Charles, uh, Frank Sinatra.
0: He's got Eddie Van Halen. Wow. uh, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. He's completely across the uh, across categories. But he also uh, broke out with his own music. And like Ronson was was a crossover from between producer
2: and actual artist. Exactly. But it's a rare thing to do. It's not not often accomplished. So now, now that we know
0: who this Mark Ronson is, let's start us off listening to Uptown Funk.
2: Wait a minute. Fill my cup, put some nigga in it. Take a sip, sign the check. Julio, get the stretch. Ride to Harlem, Hollywood, Jackson, Mississippi. If we show up, we gonna show up. Smoother than a fresh drop. Skip it. Man, I'm too hot Like a dragon, want to retire Man, I'm too hot Bitch, say my name, you know who I am I'm too hot And my band that money Break it down Girls hit you hallelujah Girls hit you hallelujah Girls hit you hallelujah Cause Uptown Funk don't give it to you Cause yeah that is just amazing okay uptown funk yeah so what are you hearing i'm hearing classic elements of funky music right we've got a huge horn section blasting out these really tight riffs over the chorus and that to me is reminiscent of of a lot of bands, Earth, Wind, and Fire comes to mind. They were known for having one of the tightest horn sections in the business.
0: Yeah, and I'm definitely hearing some of those funky drums, James Brown style. You know what I'm talking about. Shut up and What really holds this Ronson song together are those wobbly synths and that really funny voice in the background, your do do do, do 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 Which sounds so much like this Zapp and Roger tune do wa diddy blow that thing. Yeah. What else, Charlie? What else is... The most important element of a great funk song is, of course, the bass. Yes. And Uptown Funk is just seeped in that funky slap bass. Can you quickly explain to us what is meant by slap bass? Sure. Well, a typical bass player is going to pluck the strings with their fingers for a more muted and mellow tone, but Larry Graham of Sly and the Family Stone invented a whole new way of playing the bass where you would slap the bass with your thumb and then pop up with your fingers, creating this incredibly percussive of rhythmic style and you can hear that slap bass from larry graham on sly and the family stones thank you well and i think the other thing that's going on here is funk
2: is all about um this this vamp in contrast to many of the other songs we've talked about This doesn't have a complex harmonic structure, or even much of a harmonic structure at all. Right, there's few chords. There's very few chords, and you could argue that there's really only two chords going back and forth (laughs) throughout this entire song. Instead, the way this song creates contrast and interest... Is through rhythmic variation, through different instrumental combinations, yep. and through different lyrical sections. Right.
0: Yeah, I think if, if you if you break down the song, it doesn't even have the structure of a typical pop song. A typical pop song, you ha- we've talked about before on Switch On Pop, you have your verse, right. your chorus, right. and your bridge. Right. And they're usually going to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. Right. Something like that. And when you listen to Uptown Funk and you try to say, well, where's the chorus? There there's not really a chorus right now. You have the like, I'm too hot, god damn. You've got the girls hit you hallelujah, and you have the don't believe me, just watch. All these things which in another song could definitely be a chorus. Yeah. But they're all just sections, ongoing sections. And so if you if you actually break down the song, it, it does have a structure, but it's it's not typical. It's basically an A B C D structure, meaning there's an A section followed by a B section, a C, and then a D section, and they do that twice, and then just riff on a too hot vert section, which is the the B section, right, for like two minute outro of the song. Yeah. So there's a structure here, but it doesn't look anything like we what we expect from a pop song. Yeah,
2: exactly. A B C D, as opposed to as what what you were describing. Something more like A A B A A B C Right A A B. Right, right. Which is a form that in a lot of ways is very faithful to the tradition of funk, huh. which was was never about harmonic complexity, but was really about rhythmic excitement and lyrical. In, invigoration probably best <laughs> exemplified by james brown in many ways the yes godfather of funk music yeah in the other single from this mark ronson record featuring the the return of the rapper mystical it's very much in a james brown mode i just got out
0: great song you can tell that mike ronson really knows his influences and he's intentionally drawing
2: from james brown here you can hear it's uh really focused on a a really complex drum beat and rapping or i mean like really james brown kind of style shouting over the track
0: yeah it has a a preacher like quality it there's a it's, it's it's a talkiness um, with incredible vocal syncopation and utterances, uh, in- entirely his own style, which he helped create. Which
2: raises a question, is this song uptown funk? Is it merely a static recreation of a bygone musical genre? Or are Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars really adding something new to this style of music? To answer that
0: question, I think we should go to the source itself. Mark Ronson has a TED Talk viewed over a million times. Oh, okay. Where he looks at the history of sampling and how it
2: affects music, in which he says, You can't just sort of hijack nostalgia wholesale there has to be it leaves the listener feeling sickly you have to take an element of those things and then bring something fresh and new to it and i think any
0: great artist is always referencing the past showing their incredible repertoire right. but making it
2: relevant for modern times. I think a composer who illustrates that really well in the classical world is someone like Arnold Schoenberg. Huh. This is someone who in the beginning of the 20th century revolutionized music by what he called emancipating dissonance. In other words, he he abandoned the harmony of chords and melody that was familiar to western tonal music for some 300 years, and said we need to come up with a new system of music where all pitches are created equal. This results in a, in a hugely influential and, to a lot of ears, very discordant and cacophonous music. But what's interesting is that in the beginning of his career, even as he was experimenting with these really radically new melodic and harmonic forms, he was still putting in them, them in really old vessels. Oh. Basically putting them in baroque dance forms so
0: here's a recording of glenn gold playing first the bach baroque jig, followed by the schoenberg and you'll sure sure and you'll surely hear the difference
2: So you can tell here these are the same song structures, the same baroque dance forms that we uh, looked at in Boom Bang Pow episode. Yeah, these dances like the chaconne and the bourrée and the gavotte. So he was he was retaining these very old forms, which for him still had a lot of meaning, and filling them with this different and really avant-garde melodic content so it was a bit of something old and something new so that they that there was a connection that listeners could draw exactly and i'm one and i'm curious do we think that mark ronson and bruno mars are succeeding in 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 blending the new and the old in this song and i think to get us there
0: we want to look back into the history of funk where it went and how is it that it's arrived back on the scene today
1: Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at RunningSuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
2: To help us understand this funky moment that we're experiencing, the resurgence of funk, we are lucky to be joined by Micah Salkind, an African Americanist who writes about house music history and culture. And is pursuing a PhD in American studies and is also one half of the mighty DJ duo, Micah Jackson.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's a pleasure to be on Switched on Pop.
0: Thank you, Micah, for joining us. I wanted to jump in and ask the first question Why is Funk and Soul coming back today?
1: So I don't think Funk and Soul ever left us. I think the way that genre gets marketed is super fascinating, right? So, what does it mean that we have a top single on the charts that's, that's self-consciously funk. Not that we didn't hear funk in other tracks for the last 10 to 15 years, but, but why do we need to, and want to resurrect an idea of a music that was explicitly political connected to blackness, you know, and, and, and it's being produced by a kind of um, white auteur who loves the history of black music and uh racially ambiguous, uh hawaiian guy <laughs> with with plenty of, with plenty of african american extras in the in the music video to remind us what what funk is all about maybe one of the things that we're seeing happen right now is is some uneasy uh appropriation and some some looking looking for uh the rougher edges in pop music that we've smoothed over in the past Year or so with with folks like Taylor Swift really riding the charts hard.
0: What past is this drawing from? You mentioned that there's a a political past of funk. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so if you think about groups like Sly and the Family Stone, artists like uh, James Brown, you know, godfather of of funk and soul. Get past the people, get pass the hitmen. These were artists that were emerging at a time in the in the, you know, the late 60s and the 70s at the tail end of the civil rights movement. And, and funk music was really um, was really rebellious and, and in some cases revolutionary. It was a revolution to have uh, an interracial band like Cy and the Family Stone um, coming out of the Bay Area. And a lot of the music that was produced by funk artists like George Clinton and then later on in the 80s by kind of electro-funk artists like cameo. Around
0: the wild, down your
1: it was party music first and foremost. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to take that away from it. But it was also. It was also born in a particular political moment that artists were responding to, and and. and and the energy of that music reflects, reflects kind of uh, the, the rise of, of neoliberalism and kind of the death of Fordist economics in the U.S. And, and I think that's why it gets incorporated into hip hop so much. And, and it, it, funk is really the lifeblood of gangsta rap in the early 90s. I think that people have wanted, will continue to want funky music, right? So the difference between funk music, right, this genre that has a particular political history and the idea of calling something funky. Or or wanting to feel the funk, right? So Mm -hmm, maybe we can make a distinction there in terms of thinking about, you know, maybe funky music has never gone away, right?
2: Right. Uppercase funk versus lowercase funk. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's (laughs) perfect. It might not have gone away, but we shouldn't ignore. There might have been some intentional things going on in the industry of music that led to the decline of, of record sales as they weren't promoted, even though the music never went away.
1: Right. I definitely think that's true. I think that um, you know, you sort of see an ebb and flow with interest and investment in, in black artists in particular in the US, um in terms of the mainstream recording industry. And independent labels, so many of them important ones like VJ in Chicago, Black owned and operated, and of course Motown in Detroit, and then later LA, you know, some of those smaller independent labels really became the breeding grounds for, for the majors. So the top artists would get creamed off the the smaller independent labels, and then get big distribution deals with Atlantic or Warner's or whatever. And then that really helped kill, you know, that and Payola scandals um, that were disproportionately targeting small and minority owned record labels. What were those? So that was, so if you know what Payola is, it's the kind of pay to play record pr- promotional practices. That probably
0: in some guys continue today. I remember it was it was featured in uh, the Get on Up uh, James Brown biopic, and he sort of breaks all the rules and figures that he's going to fire all of his business people, and he'll just uh, go and pay, pay the young DJs to play his music.
1: Right, right, and then, which is not an uncommon practice. It just so happens that when black record executives did that, you know, <laughs> right. there was a disproportionate response by the FCC. Huh. Um, so you have labels like Philadelphia International which, you know, is basically the hotbed for most of what we know in terms of orchestral disco, really the, the, the biggest budget stuff. That label got hit hard by the Paola scandals, and, and oh. so did uh, Mer- um mercury records in chicago which uh you know was a, a thriving small record label so so these things kind of compounded and, and as a result you know this is at the same time that disco is sort of ascendant which is a much less expensive music to produce right. in the late 70s um you sort of have the death of the black band uh in some mm-hmm. ways not not completely clearly not completely but right um, certainly it's a nader for the black band.
2: Disco was less expensive than funk simply because there were less musicians that you needed to, right. you didn't need a horn section. Um, no,
1: you have synthesizers why, yeah. why, and you have a drum machine and, and, you know, and in terms of live, live uh, performance, you have a DJ. So that really changed the economics of making a band. Um, right. Really. I think, I think, I think that that contributes to a sort of decline in new funk music being produced, I don't think it kills funk by any means.
0: Right. So there's there's both some economics going on there, but as you were saying, even with the FCC and a uh, unequal hand in regulation, there was a political nature to the decline of funk music as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's incidental that these kind of enormously popular black artists that that the gov- that a government agency reacted to their popularity in kind you know with legalistic bureaucratic types of discrimination
0: i was particularly intrigued in this ridiculous music review that only the economist could write <laughs> where they say it is easy to understand why soul music is enjoying a revival. Faced with cuts in social spending and a sluggish economy, listeners in Britain may find solace in Adele's throaty songs of heartache. And they go on to basically say that um, that black music is uh, soulful and authentic, which might be uh, a little bit simplistic. They go on to say that like, because people are experiencing such hurt, what they need is that soulfulness again in order to deal with the solace.
1: Hmm it's interesting
2: yeah everyone everyone knows there's an inverse proportion between economic fortunes and the level of throatiness in pop music
0: yeah the the funny thing here is uh or the interesting connection between the economist and mark ronson if you will is this article in the economist was was titled authenticity makes a comeback
1: (laughs) authenticity the most ill-defined concept ever it's terrible
0: (laughs) that's what i'm saying lots of generalizations only the Economist can write this stuff and Mark Ronson's radio show that he did on East Village Radio was called Authentic Shit.
1: Uh well, he's certainly trading in the idea of authenticity, right? You know, he wouldn't right. be costuming his dancers. He wouldn't be putting a straight haired Filipino kid in, in a perm at a black <laughs> hair salon if he didn't think that blackness still... You know, it's par- its paradox. You know, this is what the scholar Fred Moten so brilliantly points out in his work: is that blackness is paradoxically the thing that's got the most value and the thing that is without any value. You know, in this in this moment of the "I Can't Breathe" movement taking hold, you know, what does it say that our biggest public debates, uh, in in kind of popular music, are about Iggy Azalea and the Azalea Banks and who who's got? the right to hip hop, you know, are we going to have that same debate about Mark Ronson and funk? I
0: kind (laughs) of doubt it. So what does that mean for you? Is this just a pop song or is it actually drawing from its political past and I'm curious, do you, do you think that it needs to, What what is its role in hmm. the, the history of funk music?
1: Maybe its role is to just point out that there's a longer history to this music. I don't think yeah. that uh, pop artists have the responsibility to hold the torch for a political cause. But I, And I don't see Mark Ronson particularly distancing himself. From the history of this music, I, right. but I also don't see. I, if someone wants to look at the the mantle of funk and its history, let, let's look at the roots, right? Let's look at right. a group that's you know explicitly carrying on a, a at times black radical tradition in its musical practices. I, I don't know that we need to look for Mark Ronson to do that. I don't think he claims to be doing it.
2: On on that note, Mike, I'm curious if there are other musicians you're listening to right now that you feel carry that mantle in perhaps a more low profile way than ronson and company
1: you know we were talking the other day about that it kind of matters in some ways that ronson is white and british right and, and you mentioned adele before charlie and sort of yeah we're in the, we're in this moment where sam smith has more grammy nominations hmm. than it's certainly than mary j blige who, who i've been been touting for her her latest album on which she actually collaborates with Sam Smith and Disclosure. We We keep trying to find uh, white artists that will do what so many black artists are already doing. And and I don't think that, I think that that, you know, that's just part of a white consumer public wanting to see people that look like them. And it's also the, a, a record industry that's profoundly conservative, who doesn't try to promote anyone who doesn't. And then there's, there's Bruno Mars, man, which who has a sick voice, right? He's, yeah, yeah. he, he has a really powerful high tenor. He has a soulful vibrato that he brings into his music. You know, he's, He's a great singer. You know, it's, this isn't a lyrical masterpiece. You know, <laughs> but but he's really he's, he's working that he's working that uh, that party music sound. Yeah. And and you know, I think one of the things we also have to consider too is that. People are exhausted with the EDM. It's just been too much for too right. long now. And right. People want live instruments. They want variety, right? Like They don't want their radio dial to just be Avicii <laughs> on every other track or whoever the right. Swedish or whatever dude is of the
0: moment. Right, and that's why Uptown Funk is so popular right now. It has got a great live band in the backing track. This is not a cartoon of funk. No, Ronson has put together one of the best live bands you can imagine. I
1: believe that you know
0: he's a ser- he's a musician's musician. He's not yeah. playing around with right. sound. He's right. committed to
1: it. Yeah, so I am mad at him. Let's, let's see what happens. You know, can <laughs> yeah. can he get get another top ten hit out of this new album? I hope so. Well, I hope
2: so. Also, I I will say before we wrap things up that in in defense of the lyrics of this song. Rhyming rhyming. Michelle
1: Pfeiffer, Nate. Michelle Pfeiffer.
2: But rhyming. (laughs) White gold. (laughs) Rhyming Mississippi with fresh jar of Skippy is more and <laughs> ent- a more entertaining lyric than anything I've heard in a while on the charts. So. And, and, and the history of funk lyrics is not necessarily one of True. the poetry. True,
1: But you know, I would, I would question new highs or new lows, Nate.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this has been wonderful. Micah, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insights into the history of funk and house
2: music. Um, thank you for joining
0: us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. You guys have a great rest of your show and uh, talk to you soon.
2: Thanks, Micah. Thanks so much for listening to Switched
0: on Pop. If you like what you heard today, you can find us online on the iTunes store, the Apple podcast app, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or online at www.switchedonpop.com. Today's episode has been brought to you by fluorescent blazers, hair curlers, and shoe polish, all prominently
2: featured in the music video Uptown Funk. Which, if you haven't watched, we recommend you go do so right now. And please join us in two weeks for a special Super Bowl themed episode. That's right. Did you know that your favorite drinking song is the National Anthem? And did you know that the National Anthem used to be a drinking song? <laughs> that, <laughs> that and, and more, more next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Before we leave. Thanks for listening. Let me tell you a little something. Uptown, funk you up. Uptown, funk you up. Uptown funk you up. Uptown funk you up. I said, Uptown oh, funk you
1: up. Uptown funk you up.